Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Podcast. To find out more about the Worklife Hub and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Hub Podcast. I am your host, Agnes Uheretsky. If this is the first time that you are tuning in, let me just say a few words about this podcast. We speak to authors, researchers, business thought leaders, for them to share their knowledge and insight on work-life balance, leadership, culture change and organizational development. In our work at the Worklife Hub, we help companies reform their workplace to create a culture that embraces diversity and work-life balance. We are passionate about building vibrant and engaging workplaces that are great for employees and customers. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do this via Twitter at WorkLifeHub, on our LinkedIn page or on our website. We're always happy to hear how you like the podcast or any other ideas that you would like to share with us. And now, on with the show. Welcome. To the listeners of the Work Life Podcast, this is your host, Agnes Uheretsky, and today this is my great pleasure of welcoming Bruce Daisley, who is joining me from London. Hi, Bruce. Hello there. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you very much for, for coming on the podcast. Maybe just as a quick introduction, Bruce is the CEO of Twitter UKLTD. He's been a managing director since 2013 for the UK operations at Twitter and he joined Twitter from Google. And if my research is correct, you're from Birmingham and uh, Bruce grew up on a council estate. And if I, if I also uh, research correctly, you landed your first career role by taking a gamble and drawing a cartoon CV of, of your life. <laughs> and you worked for radio, magazines, and then made your way to work at tech companies, Google, YouTube, and then Twitter. And you're also fellow podcast host at eatsleepworkrepeat.fm, where you're investigating uh, happiness at work and workplace culture. So thanks again, Bruce, for, for being here. And, and maybe just to kick off, would you tell listeners about yourself, your passion, where this interest came from about learning more about happiness at work? Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. Yeah, um, but I think my interest, first and foremost, is that when I think about work and when I think about a happy day at work, I normally think about a day that I've laughed a lot. And so, you know, I love laughing at work. And I know that laughing isn't the only thing that satisfies us at work. But for me, I've been fortunate enough to have two or three jobs where I've laughed every day. And I think, you know, when you do find yourself in a situation where you can laugh every day, it actually makes work work a pleasure. And, and actually sort of it means that you generally forgive the stressful moments and the moments that are sort of filled with a bit more anxiety. So I've always had an interest in that. And I think the thing that I've become aware of in the last few years is that work seems to be less fun than it used to be. Um, we're laughing much, much less we tend to find that we're struggling to get our jobs done. We're working into the evenings. And and even though a lot of us used to choose to work out of hours and, and maybe catch up on work in the evenings, it it doesn't seem to be as rewarding as it used to be. So so that was my interest. And I think I was I was particularly interested 
in whether whether there was any research on this or whether there was anything I could learn from experts. And I, I started looking for books on the subject and couldn't really find any books that were sort of explaining how work had evolved. And then so, so from there, I decided that I would just start my own exploration and started contacting neuroscientists or professors of organizational behavior who sort of study how companies work. And I think, you know, that was my interest, really, to try and understand the way that work was was evolving and how researchers were really just exploring that and, and trying to understand it more. I think that's such a, a very interesting and critical point that you make, because I also find that when you dig yourself into it, um, and, and as we are, and, you know, always on research gate and finding great articles in journals and, and special editions, there's so much knowledge already out there. There's empirical evidence out there. Yet when you look at workplaces and what's actually happening there, very few HR people, for example, read these kind of journals or have access to this kind of knowledge. And, and, and I think that there's very little you know, implementation of all these great stuff that's already coming out from the research community. That's right. And, and you know, the, the I guess the challenge that most HR professionals would say as well is that they they struggle to get the attention of, you know, C-suite, the, the C-levels, the CEOs of companies. Often uh, the, the bosses aren't necessarily willing to give attention to the questions that HR are raising. And that's one of the challenges. One of the things that I was astonished to discover, and, and I guess, you know, to some extent it's well known, but these loads and loads of research about how ineffective open plan offices are. Well, you'd never you'd never know it because, you know, you wander into any company that's just had their office redone or you wander into any company that, you know, is, is trying to win awards for the being the best place to work. And they're all open plan offices. I saw Mark Zuckerberg describing the new Facebook building that had been commissioned, saying it was the biggest open plan floor in the world because he wants he wants to lead to more collaboration. And, you know, it just feels astonishing to me that companies that say that they they base all of their decisions on data, but there's no shortage of data saying what a bad uh, outcome open plan offices are. But we're not looking at that data because HR, unfortunately, isn't being given enough attention by our bosses. And so that, that was the interesting thing for me. There's lots of evidence and we just need to start paying attention to it. Well, I'm happy you, you brought up uh, already this uh, open plan issue because the, my next question that I wanted to ask you was, what would you say are the workplace practices that bother you most, that you get most frustrated with because you have now gathered all this information and, and you're aware and woke <laughs> and and, yeah. and you still come across i guess from friends or you know visiting workplaces which are the ones that you feel ah oh, why don't they change this why don't they do something about this yeah the, the biggest issue is that the uh, forgive me i only know the Euro, the uk stats on this but the average british person is in 14 hours of meetings a week in fact the average boss in the UK, spends 23 hours of, of meetings a week, uh, which is just extraordinary. And, you know, the, the, the challenge we've got is that as technology has advanced, the cost of creating a meeting is almost zero. So 
you know, you can send a meeting request to someone. We're also governed by politeness that, you know, very few of us want to say no to an incoming request from someone. And so with, with zero cost, someone has, has created an appointment that you need to attend and give your full attention. Well, there was a great book a couple of years ago by a guy called Daniel Leverton, which was The Organized Mind. And he largely, his, his overall summary was that, is that attention is finite. So what he means is that, you know, we can only give our attention to a certain amount of things in a week before our brains become overwhelmed. And so if we're giving all of our attention to 140 emails that we're getting every day or to these 23 hours of meetings that we're having a week, then it's no wonder that we're struggling to get anything done. You know, I think uh, probably the best description I saw was that um, meetings and emails are work about work rather than work that create things. And so, you know, we're spending all of our time doing things which are innately unproductive and the, the impact of that is we're starting to feel exhausted. The interesting thing really is that since the arrival of email on our mobile phones, very few of us are taking the opportunity to take a, a moment to look at this. But since we, we had email on our mobile phones, the average working day has gone up from seven and a half hours a day to nine and a half hours a day. So, so we're actually working longer. And uh, I can see why some countries are starting to actually prohibit people looking at emails outside of working hours because the demands upon us and the demands upon our attention are such that the, the working day is becoming longer. And the, the end result is that more people are feeling exhausted. There was a, some brilliant work by a researcher who often writes in the Harvard, Harvard Business Review, a woman called Emma Seppala. And she said that half of all workers are now showing signs of burnout. And one of the consequences of that is people are feeling lonely at work. People are, burnout, you wouldn't expect burnout to be associated with loneliness, but people are feeling uh, lonely and, and disconnected at work. Absolutely. And, and I also think that, I don't know what you think about this theory, but sometimes I wonder because we have, everybody is working in a growingly, increasingly complex environment so the tasks are becoming more complex and somehow more demanding on us cognitively perhaps and and so meetings and some emailing that's it feels like work as you said it's kind of pseudo work and and that kind of almost gives us a refuge from from maybe tackling some of the really kind of complex and difficult issues where we would have to prioritize and take decisions and you never know which alternative is the is the right one. What do you think about this? The critical thing, I, I, I think I was mo I'm most inspired by um, an author called Cal Newport. And Cal Newport wrote a book a couple of years ago called Deep Work. And, and Cal, Cal Newport said that effectively anything that produces productive outcome at work is never something that's done with a light level of concentration. So, you know, Something at work is never created by an email that takes you a minute to answer, or it's never created by a bullet point presented in a meeting. It, it always requires a degree of concentration and normally requires you to be on your own when you're working on it or it to be in a very, very small group. And he said, you know, deep work, unfortunately, is being squeezed out by all these meetings. It's being squeezed out by all these these emails. And uh, what we need to do is we need to find a space for deep work. Now, in his book, he actually gives 
a number of methodologies, how you can you can achieve more deep work and how you can get more satisfaction from your work. I think the one that most of us would find most applicable is what he calls the monk mode morning. And that is the idea that like a monk, you retreat away from people and you sort of you withdraw yourself from all of the chatter and the discussion in the office. And and probably what you'd seek to do is before you go into your work, you'd maybe have 90 minutes at home on a Wednesday morning or a Friday morning where you write that presentation or you finish a document or you, you write a speech that you need to give. And, and you spend some time on something with no interruptions, no distractions, and you get work done. So I recognize that for, for the majority of us, getting something done without inter interruptions is obviously difficult in open plan offices or difficult when uh, we're constantly being messaged on our computers. And his solution is you maybe alter your schedule to try and work around it. Mm, absolutely. Um, and not uh, go through my Twitter like I do every morning. <laughs> do you think we could take a, maybe a little look uh, through the keyhole into Twitter? Uh, you know, how work is organized at, at your company and what are maybe some perhaps some of these theories that you're able to implement within your own workplace culture? Yes, absolutely. Probably, probably the sort of the, the biggest thing I would say is that you know I think the the number one thing that people value in their own work is a degree of autonomy, so the, a, a degree, an ability to shape their own day. And I think you know that's why I um, myself and the chief executive of another business created what we call the New Work Manifesto. So we created like a series of eight changes that anyone in their work can do to try and improve their working environment. And so these aren't necessarily related to Twitter, but a lot of them are inspired by what I've seen at Twitter or they're related to the conversations I've had with people at Twitter. So, for example, the number one thing that we put in the new work manifesto, and if you search for this, you'll find it. But if, the number one thing we put in there was the, the fact that people should and workers should presume that they've got permission to work in whichever way they see fit. And that actually came from a conversation I had at Twitter where someone came up to me and said, I've heard that you've been sort of talking about improving work and changing work. But, Bruce, I don't know what I don't know what I'm allowed to do. And I think, you know, most of us can recognize that there's a situation where we, we probably know that our company doesn't have a work from home policy or we know that our company doesn't allow us to um to, to never come into the office and so but what am I allowed to do and so someone came up to me and said to me at work and said if I've got a big presentation that I'm trying to write and I'm and I'm struggling to write it in the office am I allowed to go home early to write it and it was interesting because you know even though I presumed that people would do these things and feel free to sort of edit their day and and adjust their day I realized that actually you, you need to be explicit about it. You need to give instruction to people to say, yes, you know, if you're in a position where you've got something serious to do and you feel like you're getting you're making no progress, then yes, feel free that until I tell you otherwise that you've got permission to, to take those actions. Uh, I also wondered about Twitter and Twitter in the UK, which to me almost feels a little bit like uh you know, a little piece of Silicon Valley inside a European country. Do, do you find that working at Twitter is a, 
as a kind of a microcosmos for people working there, surrounded by a, a context that is, is quite different? I think, you know, our most successful markets in Europe are probably the UK. We're incredibly uh, successful in in the Middle East. France is a really successful market for us. And I think in each of those countries, we tend to be a blend of local ideas. So, you know, France has got lots of different approaches and our office in France is, is just staffed with, with French people. Um, lots of different approaches and we, and we have a sort of a very different uh, approach to how we talk about the, the, the way that Twitter's used in France. So, so it tends to vary that we're not really a, a microcosm of, of our headquarters, but more a reflection of how Twitter's used differently in each country, I think. That's very interesting. Now, you mentioned uh, in one of the presentations that is on YouTube and that I watched with you, you mentioned that you were quite impressed with the that the way Slack has implemented their uh, kind of working hours instead of imposing this blurring of of uh, work and social life, you know, that's happening across startups where they keep programmers and other staff there for the whole day and, and quite late into the evening. You said Slack quite uh, going against uh, all of this has decided to to be more, not strict, but, but more reductive and, and people work from 10 to 6. Do you think that in a very competitive environments, especially those where, for example, startups where they get funding injected and they, you know, time is incredibly ticking very fast, they're spending someone else's money, there's a high degree of pressure. Do you think it's still possible to take that working um, culture and make it something that's better for people's health yeah i mean i think this, the thing that we're starting to to strongly realize is that in the past one of the things that uh, people thought about startups was that you know the only way that they were going to succeed is if people worked for longer in them and in fact you know th there was no surprise that this happened because some people who were in some of those startups used to say marissa meyer was asked to describe why google was a success and she said it's because we worked 130 hours a week so you know people people aimed to build the the reputation of these firms by by claiming that overwork was the secret of success but i think what we're really starting to see now that science is is able to to look at these things and we're able to measure them far more effectively actually we're able to see that that's not the case and so you know slack is a pre-ipo company it's you know it's clearly as concerned about making the success as anyone but what i was inspired about the philosophy of slack was that they don't have table football tables they don't have don't encourage people to stay late they don't provide meals in the evening which is one of the things that you often hear about these firms they they encourage people to do a good day's work like i say like i say at sort of 10 till 6 and then go home and they really revel in the fact that people have side projects they they use some of their en energy to make themselves more interesting and and nuanced and and sort of and more rounded people and I, I i think actually we're we're starting to see evidence that that's not <coughs> that's not just a luxury that slack's choosing to do actually it tends to result in greater creativity greater productivity 
you know, when you look at the way that ideas are created and you look at the the sort of the genesis of ideas, you see that ideas generally come from the gaps between things. So generally uh, ideas come from when people are in a sort of distractible state. They tend to, ideas tend to come from people when they weren't actually doing their main activity. You know, your, your listeners might recollect a time when they've had an idea and often ideas come to people when they're in the shower or when they're out running or where they're when they're doing cooking and ideas tend to happen when we're in a distractible state um and there's, there's really good evidence on it in fact i really enjoyed this year the author the american author daniel pink wrote a book called when and it's probably the best collection of science and data about when's the the best time of day to do various activities when's the what's the the best way to do various things and he even talked about how if you're looking to do something creative then the sort of the early afternoons a really good place to do it where you your mind's in a slightly sort of distractible state and so, so as a result it's it's more suggestible to to, to sort of diversionary thought. So just an, an interesting example, really, because just a reminder that, you know, Slack doing these things isn't just them choosing to gift time back to people. They know that people will be more inventive, creative, and and and, and just come up with better ideas if they do that. And what's your, your take on how can regular workplaces, companies which are fairly traditional, where there's still, you know, presenteeism and, and people still... How do you think this kind of change can happen of empowering employees to to monitor their own energy and feel free to say, well, you know what, I can stare at this blank uh, PowerPoint template for two hours and I'm not going to get it done because I'm just not in this flow. Uh, I should better take a walk or go for a run. But... That's always, you know, that's what I'm fascinated with is that we have this, you know, we have the companies, the startups like Slacks or Twitters who come up and, and very empowered, knowledgeable leaders who understand this. Then you have companies who have matured and are incredibly mature and, and understand that they had to make these changes in order to stay competitive. But I, what frustrates me most is these hundred thousands of companies in the middle which seems to be kind of chugging along just fine and don't have this burning platform where they feel they need to change. That's right. Um, you know, I think increasingly you, you hit the nail on the head. I think there's going to be a, a twin track, track world. There's going to be a lot of workforces that aren't enlightened, that don't recognise that, you know, with the, increase, <laughs> with the increase in the amount of time that people are spending doing emails outside of work and the amount of times that people are spending in meetings, they don't recognise that actually those changes have led to people feeling more exhausted than ever before and and fundamentally something has changed in work. There was a brilliant example again in the, the Dan Pink book where Dan Pink uh, gives some research of how um, have how the, the, the world of schooling has, has learned some lessons in the last few years. And the one thing that they've learned about schooling is that actually the, the most effective way you can improve school grades for teenagers is to allow school to start 90 minutes later. You know, number one thing you could do, any school that's preoccupied with results, if you allowed teenagers to start 90 minutes later, you would improve your results with nothing else changing. And uh, another thing they learned was that 
kids can improve their results in tests by having a break immediately before the test. So like irrespective of the age, if you give them a break directly before it, none of this is revolutionary. But actually, in a world where we're all obsessed with with results and improving results, you'd have thought we'd be giving it more attention. But the, the interesting thing that Dan Pink observed is that in New Jersey, so uh, so East Coast state, this was actually uh, th- this was mandated that uh, the the state observed that they were going to introduce breaks for for kids, and the governor of New Jersey. And we, we, how often do we see people like this in our lives? A gov- the governor of Ju- New Jersey decided it was all nonsense and he, he overruled it. So, you know, the old traditional guy with no evidence whatsoever, just based on his own hunch, his own tradition, his own instinct, decided to overrule science. And we see this all the time, right? We see this in, in every example, in every workplace around the country. There's no shortage of people who say, we don't need to do that. In my day, we didn't do that. Not recognising that the world has changed, that, you know, this device that we all carry in our pockets has fundamentally changed how we're doing work. And so people who who are trying to hang on to the tradition and trying to say that, you know, it wasn't like this in my day and we don't need to adapt these things. I think fundamentally they'll find that, number one, fewer and fewer people will want to work for them. And then they'll also find that the the things that are going to be the currency of the next uh, 20, 30 years and, and forever, which are ideas, that their companies are going to struggle with actually coming up with those ideas so look I, I do think they will these things will become self-selecting the best companies will do these things and and other companies will struggle but it is disappointing like you say when you you find that you know certain companies are choosing not to give uh, flexibility to the people who work there absolutely thank you so much for this great kind of summary it was really it was really i thought that you put it really really well now, before we move to the last question, may I ask you, Bruce, to tell listeners where and how they can find out more about your work, where they can find your podcast and maybe get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. So anyone can link into me and I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, Bruce Daisley. Um, my podcast is, is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, and you can find that on iTunes. You can find that um, on anywhere you get your podcasts, really. And the New Work Manifesto, the New Work Manifesto, is just a series of eight changes that's free and and the intention really the new work manifesto i mean one of the things on it and i know that um i suspect your your listeners in in europe are probably better than 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 brits or americans but one of the things on it is taking a lunch break the importance of actually having a break from our desks and and making sure that we sort of we we renew ourselves by having a pause and so you, anyone can find the New Work Manifesto at newworkmanifesto.org. And there, there are eight changes there. You know, one of them is no emails at the weekend. One of them is taking a lunch break. Another one is, you know, 40 hours are enough. And I, I know that there are some countries that are far more progressive on these things. But I think actually what we've tried to do is put some science on the website, explain why all these things are evidenced and why on all these things you're going to do your best work if you if you actually sort of respect the way that your mind and body works. That's great. And I think even in the countries where you have the best legislation, um, for example, Germany and, and uh, Italy has now this new smart working legislation, still I think there are just very mediocre workplaces where people really still need need this kind of support in terms of uh, knowledge and interpretation of, of science. 
Coming to the last question, which is always the same on our podcast. Uh, if I could ask you, Bruce, to give one advice to directors, managers, CEOs that they can do to start improving the well-being of their employees and just creating better workplaces, what would be your advice? The interesting thing is I chatted to a guy called Tony Schwartz, who's, uh, who sort of works as an executive coach for uh, senior managers. And he said the, the thing that he'd observed in the last two years was that it was bosses that are starting to struggle more than their workers. And, you know, I think we might see these, these grounds for thinking that the world will change and the world will improve because bosses are starting to feel more burnt out than ever before. And because bosses are, are recognizing it in themselves, they're likely to be a bit more forgiving about their teams. But the number one thing that anyone can do to start pushing back against work is to, is to take the number, the badge off their email app. And that's it. that feels like all of, all of these things It feels immensely trivial. What difference would it make to take the number off your email badge? But in fact, the researcher who did that work found that of all the people he, he got to take the number off their email app, half of them were still doing it two years later. So it's this, it's this very small thing, but just stopping you looking at email continuously might seem really trivial, but it has, it has a, a, just a gentle effect on gradually improving and gradually improving your own happiness and making you feel like you can cope with the volume of work a bit better. So we need to fall out of love a little bit with our gadgets. Yeah, <laughs> and, exactly. And not, and not let them do everything they potentially can do. That's right. And look, you know, I love my phone as much as anyone and I, and I love being connected to these things as much as anyone. But I think just getting a bit of balance, you know, you can you can love cake, but not want to eat cake 24 hours a day. And so it's just about sort of getting a bit of balance about, about how you use these, having a balanced diet. So. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Bruce. I really, really enjoyed our conversation and, you know, the, the way you shared your insights so generously with listeners. So thanks a lot, and, and I wish you really the best of success uh, in your work in the future. I'm so glad to have spoken to you. Thank you so much.